welcome everyone. This is an exciting day. This is the first time Mike and I have done um, a Facebook Live. And for those of you that are new to Twin City Sherm or might be new to the What the HR podcast, I am Jesse Novi. I'm an HR business partner with C.H. Uh, Robinson Worldwide, and I'm also the co-host with my partner in crime here, Mike Toole, for our What the HR podcast, which is a podcast that um, is hosted by our local Twin Cities Sherm chapter. So Mike and I are incredibly grateful for our guests today. We have Johnny C. Taylor Jr. Johnny is Sherm president and CEO. Johnny was slated to be our keynote speaker at the Twin Cities Sherm Spring Conference this month, but unfortunately due to COVID, we had to cancel the Spring Conference. However, be sure to mark your calendars for May 20th of next year, so May 20th of 2021, which is the date for next year's Spring Conference, where Johnny will be joining us as a keynote speaker. So in lieu of the uh, Spring Conference presentation this year, Johnny did agree to do a live broadcast with What the HR podcast. And as I mentioned at the top of the hour, this is the first time we've done something like this before. So if you guys end up liking this format and would like Mike and I to do more of these, please be sure to leave comments in the feed and we'll make note of that. And also, if you haven't listened to an episode of What the HR Podcast yet, we encourage you to take a listen. You can find our episodes on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And the podcast episodes highlight current HR topics ranging from contingent workforce to the importance of mentoring. So before I hand it over to Johnny to formally introduce himself, um, I want to talk about the format for today's interview. Mike has a handful of questions that he's going to be asking Johnny today related to a number of significant HR topics. In addition to those questions, we would like you all to submit questions through the feed and uh, we'll be sure to ask Johnny some of those questions either throughout the interview or we'll leave some time at the end for some Q&A. So let's go ahead and jump in and get started. Johnny, if you could please give our listeners an overview of your background and how you landed in HR. And then additionally, for those folks that are joining us today that maybe do not come from the HR profession and are perhaps not familiar with the Society for Human Resources Management, also known as SHRM, perhaps you could give them an overview of SHRM as well and how it supports HR globally. Well, I'm so glad to be here on the Jess and Mike show, the Mike and Jess show. I don't know what you're <laughs> going to call it, but I'm really excited to be here. I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C., where... Believe it or not, it's pretty chilly for us. I mean, we're in the second week of May and the high is like in the 50s and, and I'm over it, right? I, I was like really over it all. By now, I'm supposed to be out in shorts and <laughs> I'm supposed to be traveling, by the way. But thanks to COVID, I am stuck in this um, jail cell called my house. <laughs> um, it's been rough. I have a nine-year-old. I think she's over me. I'm over her. Everything's <laughs> kind of, you know, initially it was like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to be able to bond with my little girl. And now she goes to another part of the house and I go to a different floor and we just like are trying to coexist as best we can. Um, 
So listen, I wanted to thank you all for having me here. This is, I'm not used to this. I want to be out and amongst the people. And uh, I was really looking forward to coming to the Twin Cities. I haven't been there in a very long time. Years ago, uh, I almost worked there because I was joining a law firm there years, years ago when I was an early um, yeah. young lawyer, younger lawyer, to be clear, I'm still young. But uh <laughs> And, and so I, I was excited about, you know, walking through downtown, you know, not having to go outside in the winter because of the little habit trail in downtown Minneapolis. But so pleased to be here today. For those who don't know anything about SHRM, before we talk about me, uh, we are the world's largest HR association. We have 310,000 members across the globe in 165 countries. And, um, and what's really probably most impactful is, while yes, you have 310,000 people, that makes us larger than the second and third largest um, HR associations in the world. There's one called CIPD in, in, in Europe, and then there's one in the Canadian uh, HR Association. CIPD is about 150,000 people. Canada is about 50,000. So those two combined are still only about two-thirds the size of SHRM. So we are the world's voice of all things work. It's your Society for Human Resource Management. It's funny, yesterday I was on a panel with the Director General of the World Health Organization and the International Labor Organization, and they kept saying SHRM and SHRM. <laughs> and then they would say, S-H-R-M. I said, no, it's SHRM. So just get SHRM, please. Assume that to be the case for me for purposes. For those who don't know our organization, we're headquartered in the Washington, D.C. area. Technically, we're in Alexandria, Virginia, which is about eight miles or so from the center of D.C. And so we collectively kind of call it, this is more than you want to know, but we call it the DMV, which is D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And so we are in the area and that's where we're located. We have offices here in the DMV, two of them, one in Washington, D.C. proper, the headquarters in Virginia. We have two offices in California. Yes, the People's Republic of California. <laughs> we have when it comes to employment law, you all know what I'm talking about. And then we have three offices in India. It surprises people. Sharma actually operates employees and physical offices. You come in, you think you, you know, are in the U.S. in one of our offices in India. We have one in Dubai and a small operating office in China. So a global organization that represents work, workers, and the workplace. That's what SHRM is about, me. So I'm now, I used to say I was the new CEO of SHRM. The reality is I've been in my role now about two and a half years. It feels like it was new, like just yesterday, joining January of 2018. Uh, prior to that, and I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of it, I am trained as a lawyer. I'm actually trained as a journalist first and foremost. Then I went to law school and I came out and I practiced as a lawyer in a big firm. I just mentioned almost coming to uh, the Twin Cities area to practice. Um, and then I became a VP of HR for a company that some of you would remember called Blockbuster. Um, yeah. So that was my transition from HR, from legal to HR ultimately went on to be a CEO in a, an internet media company, so on the for-profit side, and then most recently as the CEO of, of a nonprofit here in the Washington, D.C. area before joining SHRM. So I'm a lawyer, I'm an HR guy, and a CEO. I'm a dad of a little nine-year-old who I love to death, notwithstanding our need for social distancing right now, <laughs> but that's my life. And before we get into the questions, I think one of the questions, 
questions that I often get is, how did you get to HR? I didn't like do an undergraduate program in HR and then, you know, did my, paid my dues and became a VP of HR. I was a lawyer and initially a tax lawyer. And I did a lot of ERISA kind of work early on in my career and then a litigator. And it was interesting. I kept recognizing at Blockbuster that many, you know, I was the reactionary person. So after there was a problem, after we'd either treated someone uh, improperly, unfairly, what have you, or they felt that way, whether we did it or not, the lawyers were brought in to fix it and solve the problem. And too often people would go back to their behaviors, right? And I said, gosh, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be amazing to be on the other side of this, to be on the HR side where I can help prevent these sorts of issues and also create better workplaces for people. And that's why I made the transition. Fortunately, the then CEO of Blockbuster thought I'd be great in it and gave me the shot. So that was, I'm not going to tell you what year it was because that doesn't matter, but um, it was some time ago. And, uh, and I've really spent that time as a CHRO for a big publicly traded company, IEC, uh, it's Interactive Corp, where we owned our subsidiaries were large multi-billion dollar companies like Ticketmaster, Home Shopping Network, Match.com. Those were subsidiaries. I was at the parent company as the CHRO uh, for IEC. It was my last CHRO job. But before that, uh, Viacom companies, Blockbuster Entertainment and Paramount Pictures. So that's me. <laughs> That's great. And, and super interesting to kind of draw the connection from reactive on the lawyer side to proactive on the HR side. I, I guess I never thought of it that way because um, those two kind of collide in the business world. Um, so, <laughs> they do. They collide and um, certainly can relate to having the kids at home. I think uh, we're all going through the same thing. So on that note, um, let's start with COVID and then I want to get into some other things. I know everybody's talking about it, but um, SHRM is on the forefront of this stuff and it's impacting HR in a significant way. What are you seeing is short-term effects with, with COVID? And then also, what do you see as the long-term effects when things start to get back to normal? I'm going to break that up, if I may, Mike, into two answers. One of those is the short and long-term impact on HR the profession. For those of us who do this every day, um, I want to talk about that. And then secondly, I want to talk about more broadly the workplace. And and so let me start with the, the HR profession, because after all, that's who we are, the Society for Human Resource Management. Um, I got to tell you, while, while none of us would have wished COVID or anything like this on the world, and indeed the world, there's a really positive lining to this story for HR. We've for a long time said, you know, people don't understand our value. I want a seat at that proverbial table. My CEO but, doesn't understand what I do. And frankly, neither do my colleagues around the table, uh, the CFO, the CTO, the CMO. Everyone there's a business person but me. And I just am here to serve them. Well, it's fascinating. In comes this thing called COVID. And literally out of nowhere, February or March, we phase one is we've got to protect people in the workplace. What does that mean? We're PPE. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're trying to just keep people. Very quickly, it's like, that's it. People aren't going to be in the workplace. You now have to go home. 84% 
employers now are sending people home. So HR has to figure out how do you do that? And how do you do it not just domestically, but globally? Places that have big union contracts that say you can't mandate an employee work from home if in Europe that wasn't in their contract. I mean, so it's really this global focus on, oh my gosh, HR matters. We can't do business without people. By the way, we all knew that, right? Mm -hmm. We were telling them that for a long time. But it really highlighted. And then phase three. So phase one is keep people in place at work and keep them safe. Phase two is, oh, my gosh, now I got to send them home and I have to keep them productive and engaged and all of that good stuff. And now phase three is how do we get them back to work? Because work must continue. Uh, Yesterday, I was on the call with the WHO uh, director general, and we talked about lives and livelihoods. And so you can't have one without the other. Too often the conversation has been about the physical, medical life part. Like I want people to be physically healthy and safe from COVID, but none of us aren't having discussions or not enough of us are having discussions about livelihoods because you can be safe in your home, but without money and therefore unable to eat. And they went on to talk about how ultimately they believe that the pandemic's largest death toll is going to be starvation. Yeah, uh, because people aren't able to get back to work. And we are at the core of that as HR professionals. We've got to figure out how to reskill people for jobs that have now gone away. We've got to figure out how to, when we do bring people back into the workplace to do so safely, we've got to figure out how to get people who are going to remain at home, uh, learning how to work remotely, productively, efficiently with some sense of culture maintenance. So there's a lot of that that has to come up. So What does all of that mean? I was talking to a CEO of a Fortune 250 company, and he said something to me which really stuck. He said, Johnny, um, you know, I consider myself a fairly evolved CEO. He said, but I've had more conversations with my CHRO in the last eight weeks, and I'm talking substantive, strategic conversations than I had in the prior eight years. And that was just mind-blowing to me that it took COVID to do two things. One, to you know, impress upon us the need to wash our hands. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I probably did COVID to tell you to do that. But the other thing that it is that it took COVID for CEOs to understand the value of HR, right? It's both of those are almost like mind numbing that yeah. it took something like this. So long story short is I believe from the profession standpoint, we have an amazing opportunity now. You now know that you are center and, 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 and critical. And so everyone is looking to HR to help them bring our employees back on board. So that's, that's long and short term, mm-hmm. major impact for our profession. I don't think we're going to have to spend as much time saying HR should be in the room. You're actually typically convening the meetings. Okay, now let me talk about work very quickly. And I know we have a lot of time, so I just want to talk about work very quickly. Yeah, please. Several things are going to change, um, but a lot of things are not. And, and let me say this, and it may be controversial to the folks out there listening, but we are a resilient people, in particular Americans. And there's a part of us that just won't let things hold us down, that we don't like. You know, I remembered very quickly, and I'm old enough to have been around and an adult barely at the time of 911. Everyone thought, oh my God, if 911 will never travel again, the airline industry won't come back, and people, you know, everything's going to change. It changed, but it didn't. Because we, right. we started flying again and people got used to it. You'll take the appropriate precautions and we get a, we adjust. But Americans just are a little irreverent, a little rebellious, a little resilient, a lot resilient. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think as much as people are talking about, and this is me, the futurist, uh, self-proclaimed at least, I think we're going to see some things change forever. I don't think it will be common to walk in and shake people's hands ever again. I got it, right? But a lot of what makes us human beings is is not going to change. Um, I was, yeah. Sherm has some cutting edge, res, cutting edge research that we just released yesterday, real-time data. 64% of uh, salaried employees, and my number might be off a little bit because I don't have it right in front of me, but I think it's roughly 64% of salaried employees are currently working remotely. Employers tell us that within six months, that number will drop to 5%. They're bringing people back to work, partially because we we want people to come back to work to build our cultures, et cetera. But the other thing is we're learning a lot of people don't like working from home. There's some subset of the population that do, but a significant percentage of the population doesn't want to work from home. They mm. they liked it as a flexibility. You know, if you think about work from home, Flav, just had a kid and I'd like to work remotely for 12, 16 weeks, whatever, got it. But mandatory work from home is not readily uh, embraced as much as people think it is. They want it from a flexibility perspective, but not mandatory. So going forward, I think we're gonna have more flexible work arrangements, work from home, but the folks who believe that somehow now no one's gonna be at work and we're gonna do this forever, it's just, I don't think that's accurate. I don't predict that. And right. our research is indicating that employees don't, believe, don't want that. Number two, our biggest challenge is not so much gonna be work from home, it's going to get from home. Our research tells us that a significant, overwhelming majority of people um, say they're concerned about public transportation. So, you know, no matter how you do this, guys, it you can do a whole bunch of things once the person gets to your front door. If it's, you know, checking temperatures, if you're whatever you're doing, do all that. Um, PPE, gloves, face mask, all of that. But you don't control you know, how that person gets from their home there. And so, yeah, yeah in, in less loosely, uh, in, in loosely populated areas where you don't have as much uh, density, uh, you, can, you can say, okay, more people will drive or whatever. But you can't do that in a major metropolitan city like New York City. People, mm -hmm. just 8 million people can't dump into that city without public transportation. And frankly, there is no way to stagger it enough to have six feet between every traveler. Right. You just can't yeah. do it. So we are now going to have to figure that out, including, you know, helping people deal with sort of the thinking around the mindset that says, I'm going to walk into a tube underground, a dark tube underground, no fresh air, et cetera, with people I don't know. And one sneeze is going to freak out a freaking train, right? <laughs> so yeah. that, that's like real. So we've got to think through that. So the second big issue, I want to just do the third one, but the second one is we are there, we've underestimated the impact on public transportation and how people will get to work. That's that. Mm -hmm. The third one, and it's is that employers are going to be, and our research tells us this spot on, far more financially and fiscally conservative than they were in the prior decade. We all thought 2020 was just going to be the, it's a milestone year. We all talked about 2020. Well, it's here now and companies are really going to be more tight. So they're going to question travel. Do you need it? They're going to question certain expenditures because even the ones that have done well are concerned about you know, the future and whether or not we're going to go into this dark recession, et cetera. So those are really, now there are plenty of issues, but the big ones are remote working will become more accessible or more available, but it's going to be flexible. I don't think we're going to, people are going to take to being told no. Public transportation, we've got to sort that. It's a real yeah. issue for us. And then that final issue that I mentioned 
is is probably the issue of the day. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Before we transfer, I want to make sure we don't transfer yep. off of COVID too quickly because two two really good questions, Johnny, came in uh, based on some things that you were sharing. So yep. the first question um, came from Carrie Patton, and Carrie asked, um, how is this pandemic going to impact organizations, diversity, and inclusion initiatives? Yeah, Carrie, that's the thing that scares me the most, and I'm glad you mentioned that. And as you all see, this is what happens. Can you hear the doorbell in the back? <laughs> My daughter's playing with the doorbell. So, okay, it is what it is. It's it real time. The best of us. I'm like, stop it. Um, so, um, but let me answer your question. And she is, I'm not, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. She, she knows daddy's on his phone. Okay. Anyway, um, the, the issue of diversity is one that really does give me angst. And, and it's because we were already struggling with getting employers to bring in and, and take advantage of untapped pools of talent. So we talked about the formerly incarcerated, a diversity of dimension. We talked about older workers. We talked about working women or women who chose to stay at home but wanted to work under representation on gender. All of these areas now, uh, we, we were getting some traction because we had 3.5% unemployment across the country. And in some markets, the state of Iowa had 1% unemployment. So people were more amenable to considering and, and actually actively tapping into diverse populations. I don't know what happens when you have 32 million people on unemployment. I don't know when unemployment goes from 3.5 and we expect that it will get closer to 9%. All of the people who say 30% unemployment, I don't think that's real. I think that's like, we'd have a problem. At the Great Depression at its worst in the 30s, it was 25%. So I just don't think we're going to have that kind of fallout. We'll, temporarily, we will. As we get people back to work, that'll dissipate pretty quickly. But I think it's going to be two, three times what it is right now. So I am very concerned about its impact on diverse populations. And so we have to be very, very intentional about doing that. And the other thing is it naturally just becomes more of a buyer's market than a seller's market. If you think about it, you know, before talent could sell itself and there were more jobs than people. Well, now the thing is reversed. And so employers now can be more selective. And in the process of being more selective, I'm not suggesting that they're going to be racist or misogynist or whatever, sexist. It's just that, you know, now I can get the top of the class from the top schools. And that happens to typically not be particularly diverse uh, for all sorts of reasons. This is not a civil rights matter. It's just that's the way it works. And so when they say, I want the most qualified person, you're not going to get much deeper into the pool because you don't have to. And so mm -hmm. that does concern mm -hmm. me. I think we have to all as a profession be very intentional about that and ensure that we don't lose all of the progress that we've made over the last uh, several years. Is, is there an opportunity in that, Johnny, for some companies that, that maybe they don't, they're not looking to hire a, a ton more people, but because there is a lot of talent out there, that maybe they want to go out and get it. Um, is there an opportunity in this for some of those folks? Well, there's no question. And, and it also depends upon your, the sector that you're in. So our research says that 14% of employers are actually hiring. There are some big companies out there, Georgia Pacific, we all know the toilet paper issue, right? So there's some high, there's some folks out there who are working. If you work for Clorox, Lysol, Georgia Pacific, toilet paper, you can, and Walmart, I mean, there are, Walmart just announced 150,000 openings. So in fact, there are some hot spots out there, but it's 14%. 
Mm-hmm. The most of the economy has been devastated. You're either on hold, uh, even if you were going to be hiring and need people because you're just not sure, or you're laying off. So we've got to figure that out. There is an opportunity, though, for HR professionals to keep this top of mind, this conversation that inclusion and diversity in particular are not issues that are, they're not luxuries. They're not do it when you think it's the nice thing to do and you can afford to do it. It should be the way right. we do business. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I do want to move on from COVID specifically, Jess, but uh, I know you're monitoring some of the questions. Are there any other ones on COVID specifically? Um, not COVID specifically, but some questions around unemployment, which is kind of related to COVID. Um, so we can oh. ask ask that now, or I can we can wait till the Q and A. Go too. for it, because I think yeah. it's related. And I'll be brief and hit them. Talk to them. Okay. So um, does Sherm, this is coming from Nicole. Um, does Sherm view the unemployment rate being high as many people are trying not to return to work because of the increase of compensation? Will there be an overall increase to compensation and minimum wage to offset? Wow, yeah. Great question, Nicole. I actually have been meeting with the Department of Labor. Uh, the new Secretary Scalia, actually, Monday and I are having uh, another sem- em- uh, webinar to talk about this very issue. Um, and so for the people who might not know, and perhaps I don't get, but but the issue is we've now, uh, you know, because of the CARES Act, we've rolled out and pay, pay what is it, payroll protection, PPP. Um, we have a ton of money in the market, which includes not just your state benefits, but for four month periods, you'll also get a $600 check flat from the federal government. And so in many states, what's happening is, That, by the way, net-net, if you take the average state uh, uh, unemployment payout is $285, and then you put $600 on top of that, you're roughly at $900 a week, give or take, you know, it's upwards of $20, $22, $23 an hour. Well, what happens when an employer is in the market trying to hire right now someone for Walmart, and they're paying $15 an hour? That person and says, I don't need to go to work. Hell, I'm making Mm -hmm. more money sitting at home. And that has become a real problem, Nicole. And we discussed this. By the way, we knew that. We forewarned the government. I specifically, personally said this to Secretary Scalia before they rolled this program out. I said, you do understand we're going to take away an incentive for some people to work. And they said, I got it, Johnny, but we're in the middle of the crisis. This was a month in. People were losing their homes, their cars, their everything, and the government had to do something. So they knew several senators stood up and said, this is a disaster in the making because you're going to now put downward pressure on companies like Walmart who are hiring right now. They can't hire because they're competing with the federal government, right? So we are very much aware of this. I think this will, we, we did what we needed to do in the outset to, to get people, you know, from panicking and, and yep. freaking out as we saw in the Great Depression, jumping out of buildings because mm-hmm. of financial, the fear of financial collapse. We wanted people to stabilize. We wanted to get our arms around what is this COVID virus, and then the second wave of this will be a lot more methodical and more intentional. So my think, uh, my thinking, Nicole, is that number is going to come down, if not exist. With the federal government number that's now $600 a week, is not sustainable. So what you can expect is that we're going to bring that number down, if potentially eliminated, period. As there are jobs for people to go to, then we don't have an incentive to keep paying them. And that'll sort itself out. I don't think we're going to see a minimum wage increase for all of the conversations that we may have had when unemployment was three and a half percent. There's a very different conversation when it's seven, eight, nine percent. And I just don't think we're going to be in the same situation anytime soon. 
Yeah. yeah Thank great, you, Johnny. Yep. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, not too much, but with kind of piggybacking off of COVID, a lot more people are working from home. Um, technology plays an important role in what we do every day. It did before this happened. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about how fast technology is growing in the HR space and maybe what you guys are seeing as it um, kind of propels companies forward and maybe some things that people should be concerned about with technology when it comes to their culture and people. Well, Mm -hmm. so we know that COVID has forced all of us to revisit. I mean, the most stubborn of hiring managers who would say that job just can't be done remotely. It's just not possible. And now guess what? We've done it for seven, eight, nine weeks. So it is possible. And as a result, um, we technology's become our friend. It's still limited. And I want to be clear that I feel very strongly about, you know, human beings are human beings and we need interaction. And there are some significant downsides to forced mandatory remote from remote work. Um, some people just are people people. They need to get out and, and then others, you lose culture. It's hard to create culture when people are dispersed everywhere. You can do it. Not suggesting it impossible, but it's hard, much harder. And culture is at the core, as we know, of how organizations differentiate themselves, win or lose the game. So I think the use of technology is something, and I've been saying this before COVID and we'll say it afterwards, is something that HR people have been slow to embrace. We really have. And and what COVID has said is you've got to do it. Because by the way, if we don't do it, then someone else will. And so I've always said, embrace the technology, decide where it makes sense and, and, and help your employees take advantage of it. Virtual learning, our research tells us, is something it is not going anywhere. In fact, it's going to grow. While companies, as I said, are more fiscally conservative going forward, they're going to say, I don't necessarily need you to go to that conference. Even if I have to say, pay the same price for the registration, what I'm not going to have to incur is the cost of the travel, the hotel, the food, et cetera. Right. So it's not that conference that conference is going to go away, et cetera. They're just going to say we can reduce our cost by using technology. Technology is our friend. Also, you know, we should really I'm pretty big into people analytics, uh, big data. Uh, yeah. More and more, we're going to need to understand who our employees are. We're going to look at productivity and technology, technological tools will enable that. It will, if we embrace it, it can make us better at what we do. So long story short, I do believe that this whole COVID thing has, has sped up the focus uh, and the use of technology, but in no way do, do I think it's, some, it's going to make us better, um, yeah. and, but different. Absolutely. I think I saw some questions come in too on, on that one, so I don't want to skip over them. Yeah. So this one um, regarding technology, specifically automation, one of our listeners, Steve wrote, what might automation and outsourcing or contract labor do to the impact of rehiring of any furloughed employees or employees that have been laid off, especially when you're considering um, industries like hospitality and service jobs? Well, there's no question. It's going to change the game. And that's why reskilling is so important. This focus on lifelong learning. There's no question that if I'm operating, name it, a, a casino in Las Vegas right now, and I've had nine weeks where it shut down, I am very likely, uh, you know, as the HR person and any other business leader there, asking myself, do I need 900 people to come back or can I do this with 700 people? Period. I mean, it's just, yep. 
are there automations? Is there technology that will allow me to do this with fewer people? Mm-hmm. And anyone who tells us that is wrong. By the way, we were doing this before, but we were doing it because we had three and a half percent unemployment. We had you know, seven million jobs and only six million people looking. So we were going we were engaged in this process before COVID because we just didn't have enough people coupled with a low birth rate. We didn't see more people coming into the system. We were already looking for automation and robots and, and technology to help us stretch uh, our, our human capital needs. So, so this is just, yeah, it's happening. What I am encouraging all of the young people in particular who are coming out of colleges right now, this would be a horrible time to graduate college. God bless them. But it's like, you've got to use this period of time, even though you think you're freshly minted with your degree, you've got to use this time to embrace different technologies, learn different languages, coding languages, as well as spoken languages, so that you can differentiate differentiate yourself in the market. There are a lot of things that a computer can't do, that a robot can't do, and you have got to figure out what those things are, and then explain that to an employer so that you are the better choice between you and technology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something I never thought anybody would have to defend themselves is why I'm better than a yeah a robot. Um, but you talked about you know the balance of. By the way, that- can I can I before you say I just want to inject because that's a really important point. Think about yeah. something as simple as telemedicine. Because yeah. we now know we we are now using telemedicine in a way we never did. We were all used to. I'm not feeling well. I need to go in and see the doctor. And they're saying, no, you don't need to be in an emergency room. That's very bad. That's the worst place for you to go. So now we're embracing telemedicine. But what that means is that doctor's office that used to hire a receptionist that had all of these nurses, et cetera, you don't need those employees going forward. Mm -hmm. I think that office that had 20 employees will probably come back. So we're all focused on the big companies. I think that small company, that medical physician's office is now going to find out, is going to rethink whether or not it needs the same number of people to operate its business because telemedicine is a a possibility. So this is not, this is going to touch all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Great example of something that's definitely radically changed. Uh, You talked about how there's that balance of there's technology and the human touch. Um, and, And also being with remote workers, you did an interview recently, I think it was end of last year, talking about how mentoring is is key and it's something that you're passionate about. Um, talked a little bit about just your your thoughts on mentoring, Sherm's thoughts, um, and also after that about how important it is with all the different generations in the workforce and cross-generation mentoring and, and how to do that the right way. Right. So, that, you know, mentoring is, is, it's a, in the past, it's been a feel good soft word, you know, you should have a mentor, you should have a sponsor. We've heard all of that. And, but now more than ever, first of all, for the first time, we have five generations, arguably six in the workplace because mm-hmm. generation um, Z has just come into the workplace. They were born between 1997 and 2000. So you've got a ton of different people in the, in the workforce. And, uh, and so naturally there's conflict. There is real conflict. You know, diversity is challenging because the, it's easy to manage a group of people who all share the same set of experiences, backgrounds, et cetera. When you bring diversity together, diverse populations, it gets more complicated. Well, mentoring is, is so critical now, especially from a multi-generational standpoint. We've got to bring all of these people in, respect the advantages of each. But what I'm finding, and we're seeing traditional mentoring, and then we're seeing reverse mentoring. 
So it's yeah. not just that older people are teaching younger people, mentoring them. We think there's an opportunity for younger people to mentor reversely older generation workers who need to understand how technology works and how best to. So they're really mentoring is not a, a kid conversation anymore. It's an everyone conversation. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's why we at Sherm are embracing and I talk about the importance of of mentoring. The other thing that happens is when you take people who are different, bring them together and say, this is mutually beneficial. It's good for you, the older worker. It's good for you, the younger worker. Then people have a reason to embrace this, right? It's not just my boss or my company is demanding it. It actually is good for both of us. And whenever I find that's what mentoring, if properly positioned within your organization, the return on it is that you can, can eliminate some of the noise and the friction that naturally, let me say that, naturally exists when you bring different types of people together. So we're big proponents of it. As long as people, again, it's not just kids being mentored by older workers, it's, it's everybody being mentored by everyone. And then showcasing positive wins within your organization so that people can see that it actually pays. Finally, related to that, I tell young people in particular all the time, and it probably applies to all of us in some way, but more so when you're young, so many of the opportunities that you're going to be given are through relationships. I get a thousand resumes for a job and the one that's going to get, and you know, yes, the people who have top of their class, da, 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 they're going to rise to the top, but the ones that are typically really, really going to get to the tip top are when I get a phone call from someone who says, yeah. oh yeah, I met this person, can vouch yeah. for so mentoring is going to help you build your network. And as I say, which will ultimately help you with your net worth. So Absolutely. network, net worth. And I think mentoring is key there. You have some key mentors in, in your life that come to mind. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And fortunately, because I'm getting a little older now, many of them are dying. Uh, and so literally uh, have, have passed on. But yeah, mm -hmm. there are several. I From a legal standpoint, there was a guy who... I just modeled him. I modeled his behavior, his yeah. mannerisms, his everything. And then you see it when I went into the business world, Wayne Heisinger, uh, the founder of Blockbuster and, and the guy who really grew it into the Fortune 500 company that it became. I was just really mentored by him. And, and the wonderful thing is a mentor is that person you can go to and just really lay it all out. I'm a first generation guy, right? Neither of my parents have been gone to college, et cetera. And there were just things I didn't know about corporate America. I'll never, I'm going to tell something very vulnerable, but <laughs> I went to this event and I wanted to show off, he wore suspenders and I thought yeah. how hot I want to wear suspenders <laughs> like Wayne, right? What I didn't realize is that you wear suspenders or a belt. You don't wear both. Uh, <laughs> right? yeah. so, I walked into this meeting. I have on my fancy suspenders and a belt. <laughs> but it's something that simple is yeah. a mentoring relationship can really manifest itself. And so you, they know your vulnerabilities and they also can say, here are mistakes you don't have to make. And I know you would do them because your parents didn't grow up as executives. So they wouldn't know to tell you not to do it. Your school yeah. teachers, no matter what school you went to, most school teachers have never worked in corporate America. So they can't really mentor you about how to be successful in corporate America. So I, again, I encourage everyone to consider mentorship. Absolutely. Real quick on that note, Johnny, we, Mike and I recently did an interview with a local mentoring organization that has uh, recently piloted a new program on women mentoring men 
And I'm yeah. curious what your thoughts are on that and if you have heard of other organizations doing something similar. I have, and that was at the root of when I talk about older and younger and sort of reverse mentoring, that applies across the board, especially when we were now feels like a generation ago, but it was just 18 months ago, we were in the middle of the Me Too movement. I kept saying, even though challenged by like when I'd go out and give speeches on it, women would say, what do you know about Me Too? I said, well, I have a daughter and a mom and two sisters. Like, I don't want any woman to come to work or man for that matter, but to be subjected to a hostile environment. So I have every interest in ensuring that this doesn't occur. I said, but you as women, there are real opportunities for you to teach us. It's easy to sit back and say, you should know better, but if I don't, I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. And I need mentoring on how and when to navigate this. So we were big proponents of this, especially around the Me Too movement when it was really hot, was to say, come on, women, help us men. There are a lot of things we just don't know. Maybe we should know, but we don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then one last thing, um, Krista, who heads up our mentoring program for Twin City Sherm, so kindly reminded me that we should do a quick plug here because we are accepting applications for both mentors and mentees. So if you're local to the Twin Cities and you are interested, and hopefully you are based on all the great things that Johnny plugged here today, um, that you'll visit the Twin City Sherm website and you can complete an application. So thanks, Krista. Yeah, thank you, Krista. And make sure to, we have to, we play a role as HR professionals in replenishing our own profession. We're so busy helping everyone else. We don't think about the importance of us mentoring other HR people, students yeah. who are in our student chapters all over the Twin Cities. You know, we've got to reach out to those students and help them because they don't know to, to get involved in our profession and how to position themselves for advancement. So I love that you're talking about it. Great stuff. All right. And it, last thing on the mentoring note too is when we rolled out that program, what we noticed was there a lot of there was a lot of people who felt maybe they weren't qualified to be a mentor. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to hear you talk about the reverse mentoring. And I, I don't think there is a certain qualification. It's people no. mentoring people just happen mm -hmm. to be in a profession. That's right. Um. So I, I want to ask a last question here, and then I think if if we have some additional questions on the chat, we'll take those. But um, before COVID or even during it, we, we've talked about workplace diversity and culture. Um, what was trending in that area for 2020? Has it changed with everything going on or, you know, what have you guys seen? Well, so culture, workplace culture is, um, I am concerned much like I am about diversity and inclusion and even me too. I saw someone here, I think it was Steve, mentioned me too, me too movement is not over. You're absolutely right, Steve. And if I didn't mean to suggest that when it was at its height, and by the way, given that we're in a presidential election and the conversation is happening again, there's no question that it's not going away. Me too movement, diversity and inclusion, um, culture. Uh, I think what we saw was a, a just a big push of this kind of activity because we had, frankly, three and a half percent unemployment and we had more people, more jobs than we had people looking for jobs. And almost out of necessity, employers were willing to do whatever they needed to do, including these formally soft concepts of diversity and, and mentoring and ah, blah, blah. 
And th then all of a sudden, and what concerns me is that COVID could spell a real problem for that because now they can, as I said, be more selective. Mm -hmm. uh, they can be um, less concerned about words like culture. At the end of the day, if you don't want to work here, quit. That could very well be the response because okay. for every one of you who walks out the door, there are a hundred people waiting for a job. We yeah. could end up seeing all of the progress that we've made roll backwards. And that is a real concern. I believe that long-term, the organizations that win will remain true to their culture and will actually, we talk about agility and adaptability, they will adjust their culture. I think I wrote a piece uh, in CEO magazine that said, this is exactly the time where CEOs should be extra. And extra meaning you gotta go out of your way because your stars will always have opportunities. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you're not keeping that culture that they signed up for, they will leave. So, and the people who don't have other jobs aren't gonna leave, they're just gonna stay and be miserable and not as productive, efficient, what have you. So <laughs> it's really important, excuse me, that we, we keep our foot on the pedal uh, around culture because this is now more and Ever. It's important for organizations to be who they s say they were. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we're coming up on time. Um, mm -hmm. A couple of questions. I, ha I, I have another one that I had, I had written down. And um, in the beginning, you talked about how the silver lining of the pandemic was you talked about the CEO who talked to a CHRO more in the last eight weeks than the eight years and how it's elevated HR to a seat at the table, just like that. Um, what, what would you do? Like, what's your advice to those now that do have a seat at the table to hold it? And what should they bring to that table? Three things. Love that question. Number one is we really do have to constantly reskill. HR is changing in ways. I mean, you want to talk about paradigm shifts where things used to shift every five to seven years and HR is changing every six months now. As I said, between February and here we are in May, we've gone from keeping people safe at work to sending them home to bringing them back. Yeah. And all of those are totally different jobs that require very different approaches and strategies. So the number one thing that HR people can do now that you have that seat at the table is to be an expert. And we don't invest enough in upskilling ourselves, reskilling, constantly figuring out what's the latest conversations around, you know, how important is culture now? It may have been very, very important before COVID. And there's a debate about whether or not. So the more that people can participate in podcasts like this and webinars and get information, what is the um, the CDC saying right now about social distancing. You know, there's just so much information that we we need to remain abreast of. So the most important thing that I would beg every HR uh, professional to do is to maintain your skills as well to help yeah. your companies navigate through this process. If you're at the table and everyone there knows what the World Health Organization or the CDC or SHRM or these experts have said, and you don't mm -hmm. because they have been reading and consuming and going to these sorts of sessions. We had a, class, um, a webinar with the CDC uh, head of infectious diseases, Dr. Jay Butler. 41,000 people joined that webinar wow. at one time. Wow. Crashed our systems, okay? 
most of those people were not HR professionals. Mm -hmm. So everyone else is skilling themselves up. And, and I, you know, I was happy to see a significant number of HR people, but other people are coming to us, CEOs themselves and small and medium-sized businesses said, I just need to hear what the answer is. Because if you look at the media, depending upon what media outlet you go to, they have a different opinion. I want to hear from them. Number yeah. one, skill. Number two is we, um, as you think about the seat at the table, is you've got to really build courage. Uh, there are a lot of times you're sitting there and you know they're making not smart decisions. If the decision is to outsource uh, when you really know that the human imprint and touch is more important, you've got to speak up and say it. Yes, we can save money if we do X, but the long-term impacts of that, get ready to really make your case. The lawyer in me is already always ready to make the case, but to make the case that the organization's short-term decision may have really negative long-term implications. And that takes thoughtfulness. It takes courage because we all have been in that room on occasion when things are being said or done. And you're like, this is the dumbest thing they could ever do. But you don't say it. You just don't say it because you lack the courage. And, and by the way, it's not a judgmental. All of us at times are afraid and have to step up and say what we think is right. And sometimes you choose not to do it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not judging. I'm just saying courage is a really, really, really important uh, situation, uh, characteristic that we should grow, especially in this post-COVID world. And then the last issue is, and it's sort of related to, to, to courage, is we've got to lead. Um, what is, is really interesting now, and I'm talking to a lot of CHROs and CEOs, and they're saying, you know, this is everything is a people issue. So as we talk about administration, and a lot of organizations, I'm going to use this example, administrative services, the facilities, the real estate, all of that, you know, if you don't step up, the CFO will take that space from you. And frankly, where people show up to work and what that environment is like is a people issue. It's part of the employee relations and the employee experience. If you don't step up and lead it, then someone else will fill that vacuum. Some other profession, a CFO, the chief risk manager, the law department, someone else will, do, the chief technology officer will say, I'm going to choose the HRAS for you because of course your HR people can't do that. You're just the users of it. So it's about leadership now, which again, requires some courage. And most importantly, requires my first point, which is you've got to know what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. That was a great note to end on, Johnny. That was really inspirational. I, I, I would love to take up another hour of your time. I'd, I, well, listen, I'll be there next May. And the only way I'm going to tell you, not only I'm coming to May 20th, if you all deliver me some good weather. So let's start working on it now. We'll start working on that now. Warm weather. We'll, we'll do our best. Yeah. May, May is up in the air in Minnesota. You, you never know what you're going to get. For those of you that uh, maybe joined our uh, live episode uh, a little late, um, given what Johnny had just mentioned about next May, I just want to give another plug that Johnny will be joining us at our spring conference next May, uh, May 20th specifically. So May 20th, 2020. So mark your calendars now and be sure to try to join us so that we can shake Johnny's hand and maybe even give him a hug. Maybe no, no, be, no, 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 shaking hands. No, not even next year. <laughs> not even 
next year. Give me a nod. Okay. All right. (laughs) Seriously, I'm I'm so looking forward to it. And listen, we are here for you. Sherm is is here to provide you all of the resources. You can, our website gives you tons of information in terms of upskilling yourself and reskilling. And and we're just an email, a phone call away. Our knowledge center, if any of you all have questions about how to address so many of our members forget that we have full-time 24-7 people on in phone rooms licensed uh, or rather certified experienced HR professionals who can help you navigate your everyday questions if you don't immediately have the answer. So that's a part of your SHARM membership. Great. Thanks for reminding our listeners of that. Absolutely. Thank you, Johnny. Thank, yeah, I see a lot of people coming in just thanking you, Johnny, and and from nice sincerely. Thank you so much. It was it was a blast to have you on, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in about a year. How about it? I love it. Amazing. It'll be interesting to see what the world is at that point, right? I I really have been writing down some notes. Here, I'm going to encourage each of you to try this. So I'm writing down this list of what I think 2021 will be like. What will the world be? And it'll be interesting to see a year from now where we write. So I'd encourage you all, when I come there next year, we're going to talk about a list of, write down the five biggest changes, and let's see if we're right. (laughs) See how Mm -hmm. good we are at predicting uh, a year. Our time capsule. That is interesting, yeah. Is it all positive stuff? Do you only put positive things down? (laughs) No, no. Negative included. That's right. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll talk about that then in a year and see how accurate we were, but that's, that's great advice. So, um, if there's, if there's nothing else, Johnny, thank you again so much. I know you have meetings to get to and you're busy. So carving this out is, uh, is very appreciated on our side. I thank you all for those who are out there in the listening world. Thank you. And uh, thank you for inviting me. We're here for you. This is what you all have asked me to lead the organization to do this and hope that we're representing you uh, proudly. Great. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, your CEO. Help us get the podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when it's done well. Also, if you have suggestions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That is podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use the code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.